Dangerous Ideas Podcast, Episode 3, The Ethnostate, with Richard Spencer. If I saw a neo-Nazi right now, I'd punch him in the face. I may disagree with what you have to say, but I respect your right to say it. Which one of these two concepts is more American? This is something that I've been struggling with lately. If you lean left, you look to people like Bill Maher. If you lean right, you look to people like Ben Shapiro or Steve Crowder. These people place a heavy emphasis on the First Amendment. They think that politically incorrect speech, offensive speech, that should all be protected. Indeed, they would argue that's what the Bill of Rights is for. But what about when you come across someone who's using the Bill of Rights to their advantage to protect their speech, but is ultimately someone who would do away with the Constitution entirely? What about when you come across someone who's espousing ideas that could do you tremendous harm if they were ever implemented? What about if you come across someone who thinks that you shouldn't even be a citizen in in the same country that they are? How do you bridge that gap? It's easy to say that we should be able to disagree on tax policy or other things, but when it becomes more fundamental, the lines become a bit blurry. And even if those ideas aren't realistic today, we don't know what the future holds. Karl Marx's communist ideology didn't get put into effect until years after his death. It's not hard to imagine a scenario where economic crisis, natural disasters, wars, all come into play and can make a fertile breeding ground that makes people susceptible to radical ideas. One could even make the argument, look, what if the governments in Europe had imprisoned and quashed the speech of Hitler or Lenin? Many problems might have been avoided. It would have seemed to be a fairly reasonable price to pay for it. If you wait too long, if you wait until that speech has the potential to become dangerous, then it's already too late. But at the same time, I can see the other side of the argument. Western societies built on freedom of speech. Right now we have people on college campuses that don't seem to want to hear anyone's ideas that oppose or offend them. Fair enough if you use your influence or pressure to get the invitation to these speakers withdrawn, but it's quite another thing if you, you know, shout them down or chase them out of the venue. And so keep that in mind throughout this episode. Where is that balance here between free speech and just being reasonable and practical? Now I've been taking flack ever since I told people I was going to do this interview with Richard Spencer. Some people said it could be dangerous for me, given what he believes and the types of people that he attracts. Who knows what might happen if I went and talked to him. Other people have lobbied the charge, you know, what is to be gained by doing an interview with this person? You would just be giving him a platform to spew his hateful ideas. Others have said, you know, this is going to look really bad for you. You shouldn't even associate with anyone like him. And I think these are reasonable concerns. I had them myself to a certain extent. But I don't think I've ever regretted having a conversation with someone that I disagreed with. I would either come out knowing that my ideas are valid, or if they're wrong, I would come out learning something better from their perspective. And so with Richard Spencer, I think that's the same thing. I wasn't too worried about him convincing me because I knew I disagreed with his underlying premise. And I'm very comfortable with the conversation I had with Richard Spencer because I think we talked about his ideas in depth. And I think when people listen to it, they will weigh them on the merits and come to the right conclusion. And that's why this platform of podcasting isn't just a way for people to score quick points like it would be on the regular news. They have a two or three minute clip and they just try and land one-liners. Here we talk about things for 30, 45, an hour long segments and we explore them in depth if they have things in there that don't make sense eventually they're going to get teased out and people will see that for what it is so when i originally scheduled this interview i was told it was going to be an office space so i hit the road and went out to old town alexandria going to what i thought would be an office space but turned out to be his apartment so i guess check that off the old bucket list i was a guest in richard spencer's home and the reason for his hesitation was because he was getting death threats lately, so I guess he just didn't want to invite anybody to his apartment, and that's understandable. The first thing we do is talk about Charlottesville a little bit. That's not the subject of this episode, but it's recent news, and I figure this is someone that's in the thick of it, so I might as well talk to him about it while he's there. Um, but then we get into the ethno state, and this interview did not turn out at all the way I thought it would. 
given what I know about Richard Spencer and my own beliefs, I thought there would be some heated disagreements. I thought it was going to be a lot more fiery than it was, but it actually turned out to be a really calm discussion. And I haven't seen too many of those of Richard Spencer elsewhere, to be quite honest with you. So I think it's a good opportunity to judge his ideas on the merits and make your own decision. Now, let me make a quick disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and not associated with anybody else. And whenever I tell people the name of the show, the first thing they always ask me is, well, what's so dangerous about it? Well, for those of you who are wondering what's so dangerous about it, this episode is for you. This is The Ethnostate. Hi, this is Jordan with Dangerous Ideas, and I'm here with Richard Spencer. Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself and your movement. Sure. Uh, Well, I am president and creative director of the National Policy Institute. I'm the uh, co-editor and and co-founder of altright.com. I have been a uh, thought criminal, you could say, for around a decade now, although I I have been thinking these dangerous thoughts for... Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, maybe around 20 years now. And um, I, uh, uh, what, else, uh, what else should I say in, in, by way of introduction? I guess that, that pretty much sums it up. I'm generally uh, credited with uh, coining the term alt-right. Um, I started using alternative right in the summer of 2008. Uh, the, certainly the, the term has evolved and I've evolved as well. Um, but uh, but I am credited with with coining it, and I'm very happy with that. And uh, it is it's pretty crazy that alt right is has become a household term, um, you know, since 2016. So uh, there it is. So I just want to talk about recent events a little bit. Following up on a podcast I had with a previous guest, we were just talking about Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he mentioned was that not necessarily all the people there that were on the other side protesting the removal of the statues might have been associated with you or your movement or the alt-right. Do you have any idea how to gauge like how many people you brought to that event or that were with you? Well, I don't. I can't gauge how many people I brought to the event. Um, certainly, the people who were directly with me uh, were, say, a half dozen people who I was in communication with, uh, including someone in this room, uh, Greg uh, Conti, and uh, and some others who were doing security. Uh, and I was in general contact with uh, a couple dozens of people. Uh, you know, most of whom I, I've known for a, for a while. Uh, in terms of how many people I inspired to come. Uh, I, I do think that w- when I agreed to appear at Charlottesville, uh, it, it, it did change the event. It, it made it more public and, and bolder. So there probably were a lot of people who came because of that, because the event got bigger. Uh, but in terms of uh, organizing them, I had effectively nothing to do with that. I, um, I, the, the Charlottesville event um, evolved over the months. Um, I had first met Jason Kessler, uh, I think it was in January of 2017, and, and we had communicated on Twitter or something like that a, a month earlier, and he was presenting himself as, oh, just a really mainstream guy, but I'm, I live in Charlottesville, I'm against West Bellamy and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and then I met him, and he presented himself as the, the same way, and um, we, we did an, an event that, is, that has come to be known as Charlottesville One, and it took place in mid-May of this year, and it was a totally private event. We had about 200 people, and I was certainly involved with organizing that uh, pretty directly, although I was not the chief person. And uh, that was just a wild success, and we, uh, lots of great people. We, we did the torchlight rally, we did a daytime rally, we had a, a dinner, and actually, I, I'm very happy to say that not a single person got hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, some feelings were hurt, I'm sure, but, uh, but there were no, no direct confrontations with anyone. The Antifa were caught unawares. And uh, that's, that inspired Jason to uh, do his own event, effectively. He was probably jealous or something like that. And so he first started creating Charlottesville as a, you could say, an alt-right, alt-white 
even mainstream event. Unite the Right was about mm-hmm. bringing Gavin McGinnis and Bass Stickman and, and some of these, you know, colorful figures that have that have come to prominence recently. And I was certainly involved. Uh, I, I was on the, the, the ticket, too, and that created controversy. So some of these figures who don't want to talk about the race issue at all um, were saying, oh, well, I can't be on the same stage as Richard. And, and Kessler was effectively saying, oh, it's a Unite the Right event. You know, everyone's welcome. And I, I saw this going on on Facebook. Um, and so then the event seemed to um, evolve, you know, after that into an alt-right event. And it evolved further to an event that, you know, involved a, a lot of people that, you know, I don't I don't know. I can't really vouch for, uh, to be honest. It became a massive public spectacle. Hmm. And I don't know, you know, there was no way for anyone, including Jason Kessler, who was the organizer, to control who, who came. Um, and this did worry me. I mean, the whole the whole event kind of worried me to for a number of different reasons. But I felt that it had become so big that I had to be there. To back down would have looked bad. I'm glad I went. Um, I don't like being associated with people that that I don't know, that I don't trust, that I you know that I don't want to be associated with. But the fact is, it was a public event, and we every citizen does have free speech rights. They have the right to use a public space to express views. And so on. And so I, I can't really uh, begrudge them. But it was what it was. It, something like that probably had to happen in the sense of an event that became wildly controversial, where the Antifa came out in force. This was their D-Day, you could say, in terms of trying to shut people down. Um, and something like that probably had to happen. I think there were some good things about the event. There were obviously some bad things. Uh, but something like that was bound to happen because the the alt-right is a phenomenon and 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 you could say populism nationalism white identity etc it is it's boiling it's bubbling it's coming to the surface and at some point there was going to be a highly controversial moment uh, like what happened there were some parts that seemed sort of organized like the tiki torches and there right. were some parts where people were marching in the streets with the swastika flags like do you know any of that um, i have no, obviously the tiki torches i i know of that right. that was organized by kessler and, and some people who were connected to him like eli and from what i can tell there, there were no serious injuries with the tiki torches i i remember at one point uh someone threw a canister or something like that and so there was a little bit of a uh, uh, a little bit of fear there, but there were no one was hurt, and you know Antifa were uh, at the base of the Jefferson statue, um, right outside the lawn of, of UVA, and the the Unite the Right you know group. We all came down and we surrounded them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I've said this before, and I think some people have taken this the wrong way, but I mean this very seriously. If we had wanted to tear them limb from limb. We could have, and we didn't. No one did that. Um, and so I, th- I think that shows a general good faith. Even, even among people who I, I might not really want to be associated with, it, it shows a general good faith. Um, the, the daytime rally the next morning, the, the passions were just so high. And then combined with that, the police were standing down. And I, I think actually worse than standing down, they were... Um, they, they were... in. <laughs> They were facilitating violence, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they And I can go into that in more detail. But to answer your question directly, in terms of, you know, the, the, the swastika flag, I have seen a couple of photos of the same person ho- ho- hoisting a swastika flag. No one knows who this person is. He was not a speaker. He was not on stage with me. He was not connected with anyone that I know. Okay. Um, who is he? Is he an agent provocateur? Is he just a goofball with bad optics and instincts i don't know i simply don't but the fact is you can't at a public rally to connect him with with anyone is is really unfair there were dozens and dozens probably maybe even hundreds of say american flags or confederate battle flags or some kind of alt-right hammer and flag. sickle flags too on the other side hammer and sickle flags too right no one seems to uh, care about uh care about that too much uh, but uh, yeah, so it, you know, it is what it is. I I'm I am hesitant to take part 
in another free-for-all open rally for all of these reasons. But I also don't regret being at Charlottesville. In fact, I would have regretted it mightily if I had missed it. Hmm. Well, this touched on two things that I find curious. So the first one is I know that you reject the label of neo-Nazi. Sure. But to be fair, you do flirt with some of the Nazi symbolism and language, right? Like Lugenpresse, that's... Well, I said in a, in a speech that's now become infamous, mm-hmm. I, I, yes, I use the term Lugenpresse. Uh, although uh, it, it should be mentioned that that, uh, that word actually dates back to the 19th century. Um, and it is not a Nazi term. Um, although, yes, whenever you say something in Germany, in German and you're, you're, you're attacking the press, I think it, it certainly ha- had some evocations. Um, yes, I said hail Trump. That was obviously a highly provocative gesture. Um, uh, you know, being edgy does not mean that I am a neo-Nazi. And I think generally speaking, even some of my fiercest critics most unfair critics uh, don't actually label me as a neo-Nazi. I see that a lot on Twitter. I don't see that on, you know, by any mainstream source. So you would say you just do those things to be edgy, to say, like, Lugan Presse or to do the, the, the salute, the fascist-type salute? Well, I never give a—I raised a, a whiskey glass. Um, there were some people in the audience um, who gave a Roman salute, mm-hmm. yes. Um, you know, the, the way I think about that, I—, I it's interesting. Interesting, just to go back to my my thought process. Um, I I did predict Trump's victory, but I I knew that I was going out on a limb. I thought there was a very good chance that he would have lost. Um, when I was thinking about what speech I would give on November nineteenth, it's almost a almost a year ago. Um, I I actually had hail Trump, hail our people, hail Vi- I not hail victory, but I had that in the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply because I felt that it was the right provocative gesture. I knew that it would be highly uh, provocative. I certainly didn't know it would be that provocative, that it would, it would just go viral. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was a provocative gesture. It was a way of kind of, and I think it was a provocative gesture and an ironic gesture on the part of people in the audience that it, people get, whenever one stands up for white identity or when one embraces one's identity and that includes one's racial identity uh one gets called this you know this set uh a collection of insults you're a neo-nazi you're a southern confederate you're the kkk you're etc and i think a lot of the alt-right has has been about just throwing that back in the face of hmm. detractors so it's not something that i would do i would certainly not do i would not say hail trump now i'm a very critical of donald trump Mm. Uh, but in that moment, uh, it was a highly provocative thing, and I don't regret that either. Um, it was what it was. I knew it would be provocative. I didn't quite count on uh, the, the level uh, of uh, provocation. But, um, yeah, I think we need to be uncucked. Um, we don't play by other people's rules. If there were a left-wing gathering... Um, and they had just scored some big fi- victory in some some fashion, an election, something. Um, I, I don't think you would have to search too far to find someone, you know, to give a, a clenched fist salute or something, or, or some kind of, you know, uh, um, you know, people of the world unite or workers of the world unite, some kind of evocation of the 20th century that is both ironical and euphoric at the same time. You mean like the Shea T-shirt type of thing. The Shea T-shirt is one. Of, that's. That, that's hilarious in a way because that, that's become a fashion, mm. you know, that and a swatch and, and you know, tight jeans have become like a, a hipster fashion, even though they, they probably have no idea who Shea is. He's just a, a representation of rebellion in general. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, that, that is what it's about. And, and I don't think we should ever play by our enemy's rules. Now, um, we shouldn't just give our enemies enough rope with which they can hang us. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not a neo-Nazi. I'm not, I'm not going to identify with a 20th century movement. It would be, it would be like, uh, you know, a liberal today identifying with Stalinism or something. It's just, it's just totally outmoded. It's, it's part of the past. Um, so yeah, I, I think we're, we're not going to play by other people's rules. We're going to be provocative, but I don't think we should ever be trapped in the 20th century. Well, let's let's expand because you use an interesting word that when you say enemy, so are you talking about people you disagree with, or you're talking about Antifa? Like, because I mean, we're all Americans, we may disagree, but what what distinguishes enemy from person we disagree with? 
Sure, that, that's a reasonable uh, a question. Um, I would say people who really want to take down the alt-right movement in general, people mm -hmm. who are seeking to deplatform us, that obviously includes uh, Antifa, uh, who are very eager to use violence against people they think might be alt-right or alt-right facilitators. So um, yeah, that includes people who are, who are truly hostile. That doesn't include you know, genuine liberals and leftists whom I can talk with. I think it would be wrong to say that you know, these people are my enemy. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'd say this, you know, life and politics and history, it's, it's not a debating club. You know, where we all go and we sip brandy and someone has a proposition and someone has a contradiction and, and so on. Uh, you know, life and, and history and politics, it's about winning and losing. It's right. about it's, it's, it's very often a zero sum game. And so, you know, at some point, one does have to confront these ideas in a in a bold and direct fashion. Well, that sounds like a zero sum game in some ways. So you're saying that Antifa uses violence and you disagree with that. So is your cause not worthy of using violence? Or you just don't like violence even though other people are using it? Um, okay, in terms of using violence and self-defense, I think everyone agrees that that's justified if one is attacked right, by right, Antifa. Right. Uh, I have no interest in physically assaulting Antifa. Uh, that makes us look bad. We play down to their level. It's totally stupid. Um, I would rather we just ignore Antifa. The, I, the, I'm only interested in defending ourselves against Antifa. Um, there's no use of violence that I can see, non-self-defense violence that I can see, that would bring about the, the world that I want, in the sense that um, I, I can't, if anyone talks about engaging in something like that, I... I, I, I cut the line, basically. I don't want to hear about it. Um, it would make us look awful. It would delegitimize our ideas tremendously. Um, it is just absolutely, it's not just a, it's not just a, a moral crime, but it's a, a mistake. Interesting. Um, and so uh, that being said, um, I, I'm not going to be a Pollyanna and pretend that history itself isn't a slaughter bench. Um, the fact is the state is able to use violence in order to engage in, in, in pursuing its will, its ends. Right. Um, the state has war making capability. And, and that, that's actually what defines a sovereign state from, you know, the Czech Republic or something like that. The Czech Republic is not really going to declare war on anyone. And that means that they are not truly sovereign. Uh, a sovereign state is able to use violence, whether that's taxation, which... I don't sound like a libertarian. That is violent, ultimately, whether that's arrest, policing, and ultimately war making. The state has that capability, that legitimacy to use violence. Um, the actors like myself, we don't. Um, so we should not. Hmm. Um, I am never going to confront the largest government you know, in the world on its own terms. You know, I, it, the, you know running, going up against a, a tank with a BB gun is, is not a good idea. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, I have legitimacy because I put forth myself and our ideas in a good faith fashion. I'm willing to talk with people. If I'm ever associated with attacking people, then I won't be legitimate. Well, this is good. This leads actually into the main topic that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's the ethnostate. Sure. So if I'm correct, that would be your end goal, right? To have a state, the United States, that is a country for white people? Right. It, it probably would not be the United States. I mean, that the, the ethnostate, as I've laid it down, is an ideal. And that doesn't mean that it won't come into being. Uh, right. Um, but it, at the same time, it's not something that we could implement tomorrow morning. I mean, Mitch McConnell is not going to say, all right, friends, I'm going to put away the tax proposal for millionaires and <laughs> we're going to pursue the ethnostate. I'm not delusional. Uh, so what, one of the reasons why I've talked about the ethnostate and why I think it's actually essential is psychological more than anything. And the, the left has always had big dreams. The left has had the dream of communism. Uh, the, 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 um, a, the Jewish, it's not really the left, but the Jewish identity movement had in the 19th century this dream of Zionism, which was treated as totally impractical and impossible, etc., when it was just an idea. The right has been reactionary. It has 
reacted to the left and it's dismissed utopias it said oh you know uh there's history we want to stand athwart history and yell stop it's a famous line from national review william f buckley Uh, i think the right also needs big dreams i think we need to be just as utopian you could say uh as the left and so we need to ultimately have an idea of what we ultimately want Where is this ultimately leading? Even if that's not going to be achievable in our lifetime, maybe it's perhaps never achievable in the way that true communism, the left's minds, has never been achieved. But it's a motivating ideal. And so, yes, I do. I would want a, you know, a a state on the European continent, you know, from Portugal to Vladivostok. Um, uh, whether something like that could take part, could arise in, in North America, that too would be something that would be wonderful. But the main thing right now is to define it as an ideal and to, to get people thinking in a new direction. But as I understand the, the ethnostate, it would be post-American. Hmm. Um, I don't think this could arise as a, a policy initiative by the Republican Party or something like that, or the Democratic Party. I mean, it's, it, is a, it is an ideal. So it's safe to say you're not necessarily like a constitutionalist or a patriot. You're more of an idealist. You're yes. looking for what comes in. I'm not a constitutionalist. Right. Um, I would uh, throw away the Constitution in a heartbeat if but, that meant protecting our race and civilization. But you do like to throw around the First Amendment a lot, though, right? That's kind of what you cloak yourself in when people try and shut down your speech. So, Well, I'm a citizen of this country, and so I benefit from the First Amendment. Just because I don't believe in legal idolatry... Uh, doesn't mean that I don't have certain rights as a citizen. I mean, right. I am a citizen of this country. I, I benefit from the First Amendment, certainly. So how would you then implement an ethnostate? Let's pretend somehow your party, uh, you, you have a party, the alt-right party maybe we'll call it, whatever. Sure. You have some political power in government. How do you implement this ethnostate? We're all mixed together now. How do you unmix? Uh, I The... Well, there's two ways of answering that. Uh, on a most, in the general level, I don't know mm. because I don't know how history is going to unfold, and to for me to lay out some immediate plan. This is going to happen in 2025, and and first we'll do this, and then that. I, I think that would be ridiculous, to be honest, because one has to have an ideal and then be flexible when it comes to pragmatism and and the day-to-day operations. So I don't know fundamentally. Now, in terms of maybe a a, a simpler, more pragmatic question in terms of how can we unmix people? Well, to to, to a large degree, we aren't that mixed up. Uh, You know, Manhattan Island is as more segregated than 1950s Alabama. Uh, the uh, Dallas public school system is 98% non-white. Uh, it's a remarkable, and each school, there are effectively Mexican school, Hispanic schools, there are black schools, etc. cetera. Uh, so we, we have done that. In terms of recent immigrants, uh, could we entice them to go back, whether it's um, cracking down on them legally and lawfully on, on illegal immigrants, uh, sending them home, they have a home to go back to. In terms of recent immigrants who who haven't really set down roots, do they have a place to go back? Um, yes. Could we pay them to go back? Could we actually invest in these other countries, build a place for them to go back? I would be more than willing to do that. Could we colonize parts of our hemisphere um, as homelands for peoples? We have done this in the past. Um, so in terms of pragmatic solutions, there are millions of totally humane um, ways of creating ethnostates. All that it requires really is the will and the imagination to enact them. What about the inhumane and the immoral ways? Are you open to those too? Like is when people would think ethnostate, think, you know, we're going to kick these people out. We're going to forcibly right. remove them. I don't think any of that is necessary at all. Um, but what if it was possible? Like, I, like if you it's have a possible, magic wand, you could to, do it. I don't want to do that. Absolutely not. That that would lead to terrible implications. But even if it would, so quote well, unquote, save the race. Or? Well, let's let's say this. Uh, I think there's a there's a very good um, uh, uh, formulation which I I think Stephen McNallan, who's an interesting guy, uh, formulated it, and that is um, the existence and future of my people is non-negotiable. 
So yes, if there were some exigent where our people hung in the balance, um, would I fight for them? Of course. I mean, I, I don't need to say it, but in terms of what that would be like or, or something, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you. That is not where we are now. I mean, let's just put it mildly. At this point, the white race is is not backed up against the wall with, you know, the, the, the communist Chinese government pointing guns at their heads. I mean, that's not where we are. Uh, you know, in that case, would you use violence to free them? Of course I would, but we're not even close to that. Um, that, you know, where, you know, someone's directly being assaulted. Where we are now is that we are depressed. I mean, the, the white race um, on the level of, say, the, the middle class um, is, has pursued individualism in the form of uh, wasting one's life away in suburbia, you know, watching Netflix and drinking Chardonnay. Um, some of the, the lower class, to a large degree, has, has faced something far worse. Um, the, 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 the increase in suicide, the increase in despondency, the, incre the opioid epidemic and, and the meth epidemic from a, a decade ago or so, those are both expressions of a general despondency. Um, the white race at, right now is going out with a whimper and not a bang. We are not put up against the wall by evil commies. Uh, we, are, we have stopped believing in ourselves. We are in a bad position in general. And we are, are, are dying through a process of, of despondency and, and hopelessness. I don't necessarily think some of the things you mentioned were bad. I mean, that's just an indicator that we have come so far. Like, we have enough wealth and resources in this society that we can literally sit at home and watch Netflix all day, in some cases, if you want to. But it sounds like you're yearning for people to reach some different potential. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I would prefer physical extinction to Netflix extinction. <laughs> what do you have against Netflix? I feel like that is the <laughs> least of our concerns. I'm, I'm using it as a metaphor now. I, I don't. I don't have any. You know, Netflix is just a uh, a metaphor. It's, well, it's your special opportunity is right out the window, buddy. They're not going to take you now. No, no. But so you you would rather have people doing what? Well, what I mean is there is uh, look. There, there's a very famous. Uh, photo that actually has become a meme mm -hmm. in which Mark Zuckerberg is walking down an auditorium of people wearing VR glasses and he's beaming walking this way and everyone is effectively asleep it's it is a brave new world everyone's on soma I, I forget what they called it in Huxley's brave new world they they call these orgies like the feely Jeezies or something. Mm. it's some funny name for it it was effectively just pure superficial pleasure you know, something close sex that, that actually resembles masturbation. Um, could we, are, are, is the future of not just the white race, but all humanity, are we going to be one undifferentiated mass wearing VR goggles, watching extreme pornography and, and jerking off while being uh, fed, you know, Soylent Green through an IV? Um, I, I'm, I'm using fairly colorful yeah. uh, descriptions there, but is something like that possible? Something like that actually kind of happening? And the answer is yes. I, uh, that last man scenario, as, as Nietzsche understood it, the, the last man who has no ideal outside of comfort and safety, that is something that is profoundly disgusting and sick to me. And that's something that a liberal can't really oppose, you know. A liberal is like, oh, well, they, they chose to be that way. Oh, well, how can we oppose this? After all, they're all happy. Happy, happy, happy is not an ideal. In a way, unhappiness is an ideal. Because unhappiness means struggle. It means a, a process of overcoming. It means a process of, of, of setting a goal and, and attempting to achieve it. Our goal for the alt-right should not be happiness. It should not be comfort and safety. Those are goals for women and cattle. Our goals should be struggle, achievement, glory. And so I, I think that the alt-right, we, we have lots of policy ideas, but what we're fundamentally about is bringing in this totally new perspective, a totally anti-liberal perspective hmm. into, the, in, in, into the mainstream. And, and, and that's where we're most powerful. And that's where we reach the people. It's not when we just talk about policy or talk about politics or talk about Trump, but when we offer a radical alternative to the current system. Hmm. 
Well, again, those are ideas that I've heard before with uh, the struggle. I mean, you, you, you know, again, I can draw a parallel to Germany back in the 30s and 40s. That's that was their ideal, right? They wanted people to a man to come of age and go out and hunt yeah. and prove himself, and they want to achieve greatness through conquest and that kind of thing. But you're saying, look, the idea that we would that, that these ideas would be directly and solely connected with a dozen year period of time. Oh, right. I'm not saying that's exclusive to them. It definitely goes back further. And you can actually weirdly find a lot of the same ideas with Soviet communism as well. Mm -hmm. You can obviously, I mean, I'm evoking Nietzsche in a lot of what I'm saying, so you can obviously go back earlier. I would say this is really the history of our people. Um, The the history of our people has been one of uh, wandering, of conquering, of sailing our ships into uncharted waters, of building giant structures uh, like the Roman Empire and, and but subsequent there's, empires. There's none, there's none of that left, though. There's nowhere left to conquer. We have what we need. There's nowhere left to explore. We've been everywhere. So what? how, how do you define struggle now? <laughs> I mean... Well, I think there's an endless struggle. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's in a way... There are a few places that are maybe uncharted still hmm. remaining on the earth. But I, I, I certainly get your point. Um, I, I think outer space is something that we haven't tapped into at all. We, we've barely scratched the surface of what that would portend. And I, I do think that the future of the white race is in the stars. Well, let's, let's talk about that more. How do you define white? Uh-huh. What does that mean? Because different people throughout times have been different. Right. You know, um, in some ways, it's a very easy question. Uh, I would define white in the sense of do you benefit, do you not benefit from affirmative action? <laughs> um, the, in a way, like we, we, we can talk about the complicated nature of, of who is white, etc. Uh, but in terms of when the rubber hits the road in the day to day, liberals and conservatives, they don't have any problem defining white whatsoever. It's not a question. It's only when someone embraces white identity that it becomes like, oh, but wait a second. Uh, you know, many people didn't consider uh, Slavs to be Americans and at this date, you know, so what do you think? Like, all of that just strikes me as kind of nitpicking and, and, and deflection. Um, the fact is we know who, who, who a white person is. That doesn't mean that there aren't blurry edges. But let me say this. Um, a, the, there is a broad Caucasian race when I define white, um, and, and race, what I mean by that is a very large extended family. So there has been, over the process of tens of thousands of years, there has been general interbreeding. You could uh, relate a race in the sense with an extended family or a breed, a, do- a breed of dogs. I don't think anyone really has any problem understanding that, even though many of these breeds have come into being over the last hundred years. Um, so that, there is a broad Caucasian area and you could say race in that sense i i would say when i'm talking about white i'm talking about core europe so those are the germanic peoples the latin peoples the celtic peoples and the slavic peoples um and 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 some other related groups there's some difficult areas are armenians white you know and, and so on um are are there slavs who have a large degree of mongoloid admixture so on a lot of those questions don't really interest me. Hmm. You know, if if someone, every, just because a concept might have blurry edges doesn't mean that it's not a coherent concept. I mean, everything is a spectrum to some degree. But if someone, if someone is perceived as white, if someone genuinely, authentically identifies with our race and civilization, they are white. And we can worry about details later. So, well, what about, for example, mixed persons and like... Uh... That is a really difficult issue. Hmm. And I don't have a simple answer to that, actually. Hmm. Um, I, I have answered it before. Uh, I, I, when I was speaking with Graham Wood, who was actually a classmate of mine at St. Mark's School of Texas, and he is half Asian. Um, although he, uh, he, he, you know, he, he actually looks quite white. I think if anyone just saw him, they would probably identify him as white. But he is actually is half Asian. Um, you know, if someone like that, again, genuinely and authentically identified with the white race, I, I, I think that's a that's a problem we could solve. It's, it's just not a this is not like, like none of this really affects the fact that there are 
tens of millions, hundreds of millions of white people who are not of mixed race, who are of that core community of, of Germans and Slavs and Latins and, and uh, um, Mediterraneans and, you know, Englishmen, Scotsmen, Italians, Russians, mm-hmm. etc. Like, it, it just, it's not a real issue. And, you know, individual cases are, are exceptions by their very nature. Well, I mean, let's let's back down from saying it might not be an issue. For example, let's say I come from a mixed family. Like, mm-hmm. how, what would you do? Like, you know, half the family in, half the family out, or like, how does that work? I, I mean, that's maybe not an issue for you, but for a lot of people, it would be a big issue. It is. I have no. It, if we are able to create an ethnostate, as I've thought of it, mm-hmm. and and let me go into that real quick, just because I, I don't sure. think I did earlier. I mean, an ethnostate, as I imagine it, would not simply be an ethnostate like the Czech Republic is an ethnostate or like Sweden was an ethnostate up to about 15 years ago, let's say. Um, That is a a small uh, parliamentary nation state that effectively has a a homogeneous population, linguistically and culturally and and very often religiously Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, The ethnostate ideal that I have is more imperial, it's more broader in nature. So this would be a home for all Europeans around the world. So kind of like a white Zion? Exactly. So much like Zionism, the state of Israel is a Jewish state, and it's not just a state for citizens of Israel. It is a state for world Jewry. Um, and there are many divisions within world Jewry. There's Sephardic Jews, mm-hmm. there's Ashkenazi, there's Ethiopian Jews, a bit contentious there. Um, but it is a state for them. Mm-hmm. And so the ethnostate would be a state for us. So if one were a Slav, and one, one could live wherever around the world, but one would have a place in that ethnostate. And within the ethnostate, there would certainly be lots of different regions. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there would be different regions with different religious characters or cultural characters and so on. So it's not, I'm not trying to like reduce everyone into one, you know, whiteness, some basic whiteness, nor am I trying to create a tiny little ethnostate for, for Estonians mm. that will have no power, that will have no... Geopolit- ability to project power geopolitically it will be tiny little thing it might go to war with other whites this would be a unified block so that no whites would be at war with other whites which is essential um, now in terms of this question someone's mixed race could they get it I, I, I don't have an answer because it's just a tragic situation and I, I, I just it, it would it would obviously depend on, on that person's willingness to be a part of this new community interesting well that actually let's get dig down deeper into like the underlying assumptions here because i don't think we talked about that yet so you're talking about whiteness being something that you want to consolidate and protect but why why for example you know couldn't you have a white person or black person in the same place you're saying this is detrimental in some way well, I want to conserve the white race as a as a being, as something that has history and that has a future and that has cultures that are inherent to it. that cannot be separated from the race. Interesting. Um, so I certainly there is a conservation element to this. No, no question. Uh, much, you know, and, and, and much like we want to conserve lots of different living things that have histories and futures. Uh, the redwoods, the, the various breeds of animal, and so on. Uh, but, I, but I also think that the white race's destiny is unique in the sense that we, we have a unique future in terms of what are we going to become. I don't want to merely conserve white people if that means that we are going to be powerless or humiliated. I want white people to flourish and to become something greater than than what they are. But why would it have to be white specific in order for them to do that? Because we have a particular unique destiny that is not shared by Africans. That's that's not shared. But that's by a belief. Arabs. You can't you can't point to be like in a science book or like prove that. That's like your belief. You're saying we have a destiny. Like I could say I have a destiny to become the next whatever. Sure, I agree. To a large degree, it is a matter of of belief. Uh, but it's it's historically founded belief. Uh, it's not just I'm going to learn how to fly tomorrow morning. It's that the white race has a unique history and that one can abstract from this history a, a great a general story. 
and one can one can abstract from this history a a a sense of destiny and the sense of particular cultures uh way weltanschauung and you know ways of viewing the world, world that are unique to us and that only we can achieve and that we are not we are going to lose if we engage in race mixing on a global scale if we i mean there can be individual cases if we had pure racial mixture then africans would lose their particular way of being and i also don't want that but i don't i don't necessarily agree with that that you have a particular way of being that's inherent in your race um just because you have a particular race your skin color doesn't determine how you are how you'll act right for example it does well (laughs) let me give you this right Say we had someone from North Korea, a baby, and Uh he was adopted by white American parents. Would he have any inherent North Korean tendencies? I think he would be an American through and through. I I think you're you're mixing up race and civilization and culture with just a particular nationality in the sense of a state. So no, if you had a North Korean baby that was raised in China or the United States, no, I don't think he would be a card-carrying communist or or something like that. Of course I don't. Through osmosis or something he become No, of course not. Um, Would he be Asian in some level? Would he be East Asian on some level? Would he have a particular way of being, a particular way of seeing the world, even if he was raised in the United States with white parents? There's no question. There's no question that Asians who I've met, I've had many friends who are Asian, um, they, that it's not that they aren't American citizens, it's not that they don't share quite a bit in common with me in terms of context, what, we, what music we might like, or whatever. But in terms of having a unique way of being and thinking, uh, there's no question. That but could that. that be passed down from their parents? Uh, I don't. I, I mean, it, I mean, it's be, past, from being raised by their parents that they were passed down through. Life. Even an adopted Asian is is going to have. I mean, is going to have a, a a particular uniqueness that can't be transferred from his parents. I think that's Colin old... Kaepernick is a very good example of a mixed race person. He's half African American, half white, mm-hmm. who was raised in what might be seen as the most loving white Christian homes, and yet he. Probably appreciates his parents to a certain degree, but also deeply resents them and is alienated from them. And I don't think that's merely social. I, I think that has to do with his biological nature as well. That he grasps. You can't get away from what you were born into. But that's sort of cartoonish in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There was this old map of the European continent. And they had all the stereotypes of all the different nation states. And they had like, you know... It was just cartoonish, basically. They had a picture of someone from Germany looking a certain way and acting a certain way. And this was actually the old international relations uh, view. Like, the Germans were too martial. They're always going to be like that. And, you know, the, right. the Russians are too whatever. And they're always going to be like that no matter what. Isn't, aren't those stereotypes kind of true? I mean, I, re- I, have this, I have a funny anecdote. I, I remember when um, I was studying German at the Goethe Institute uh, 15 years ago or so. And uh, I actually had to get on a train to get to the airport. And I had to leave class early. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was telling the secretary this situation. And she was thinking, oh, I have the perfect solution for you. And so she goes, this is what we should do. You, know, we, you bring your bags. We're going to keep them in this closet. Then I will give you a special key to that closet. You'll unlock the closet, take your bags. Then, without coming back to me, so we don't we don't lose any efficiency, you'll drop those keys into the mailbox on your way. And I was like, wow, you have over-engineered <laughs> a solution that we probably could have just done it more easily. But thank you. Uh, you know, much like you over-engineer a car or over-engineer a watch, you have over-engineered this thing. It's a very Germanic trait. Um, a few years later, I was in a completely analogous situation in uh, France, and I was just actually doing a little brush up on French. Uh, I have a rudimentary understanding of French, and I had to leave early from class. And I said, oh, could I leave my bags with the secretary or whatever? And she said, c'est impossible. C'est impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I mean, again, I, I'm using these as, these are kind of funny stereotypes, but there is the, the French bureaucrat 
uh, who is, you know, more interested in, in having a, you know, meal of two hour duration and sipping wine and, and, and doesn't want to deal with that. And then the, the German overly helpful over engineer. The fact is, and, you know, Russians, when I, when I visited Russia, um, there, there is a kind of down to earthness and saltiness and about Slavs and about Russians in particular that you wouldn't see in um, in in, uh, in Germany, uh, the Scotch Irish have a particular culture. They're white, of course, but they have a particular way of being that's different than German Americans. Uh, the fact is, these stereotypes actually are are very true to a large degree. Well, I'm not necessarily disputing the validity of the stereotypes, although I think in in most cases it does come down to the individual. But I'm I'm dis- disputing the link you're making to the race. I understand these to be the links to the culture, and it makes sense that you might experience these because you're in those countries. Um, my grandfather was from Germany, and he was a certain way, and I always thought, oh, it's very German of him to right. be sort of no-nonsense and straightforward. But if they had been raised elsewhere, I think they would take on the traits of wherever they were from. I don't necessarily think it's in the blood or the DNA, so but, to speak. But it doesn't work that like that historically. I Look, culture and race are, are separate concepts, of course. But does culture emerge from race? Is does culture does race have culture on a leash, so to speak? I would say an absolutely affirmative yes. Mm. We can see this historically. I mean, Australia or New Zealand; those are unique cultures in their own right. Do they ultimately derive from a white or Anglo-Saxon, or you could say Germanic culture? The answer is clearly yes. You know, going to um, you know, uh, 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 Sydney and going to Berlin or going to London, obviously they're different places, but there is a cert- like a clear commonality uh, to those. The fact that they were all created by re- deep, deeply related people. People were effectively cousins. Uh, that, that's clear. And so, yes, col- col- race has culture on a leash. You can't truly separate culture from race. I, I, I guess I'll have to go on record and just disagree there. I won't, I won't belabor the point too much. Well, I want to I switch the topic a little bit because it seems like some of your gripes are about economic concerns, right? Because I know earlier you mentioned, you know, I can tell someone's white if they're not benefited by affirmative action. Right. But the economic collapse and even before that, other things that are causing the economy to slow down and decline, this is something that is experienced by everyone. It's not necessarily specific sure. to race. Why would... if why would the solution be then to segregate? Well, I mean, I, well, well first of two things. First off, I care about my people more. And so I see economic problems through the lens of my people, race. Uh, but in the sense of, are a lot of these things created through race? Yes. I mean, in the sense of the immigration of millions of people who have a different being than white Americans, who have gen- different general intelligence levels, different hopes and dreams, and so on. That is something that is racial in character and is created through mass migration. And you're not just saying necessarily lesser intelligence. You would say even some are higher intelligence. Sure, some are higher intelligence, certainly. That and, is also a problem, by and, the way. Because that would be competing for your resources. Correct, yes. I mean, I don't want. I, I, I actually opposed the Raise Act, which is something that hasn't gone very far. Trump mentioned this about a uh, mentioned this in last February or something, and then and then it was uh, proposed in September. Uh, the Raise Act would preference high skilled uh, and effectively high IQ people right. uh, for for immigration, and it would reduce immigration from roughly a million a year to uh, five hundred thousand. All of this is fine. I mean, I, I don't I want to give credit where credit's due. That this is I don't want to throw you know I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's, it's a decent act, but I think it is fundamentally flawed because we need to support our people first, and our people are threatened by high IQ Indians or high IQ East Asians in just to the degree that they're threatened by say low a lower but, IQ Hispanics but or we Africans. Al- but aren't we also helped though? Because say for instance, you know, you have some of these high IQ people coming over and they become a doctor. Do you want, you know why can't white people become doctors? Well you just said it. If they're threatened, this person has a higher IQ hypothetically and he's coming over here, he's taking it from the lower IQ person that you're trying to help. No, I I, I think he very often those people are willing to uh, do things that, that whites aren't and they, they certainly benefit from things like affirmative action. But yeah, I mean, I would actually go even further. I mean, 
I'm, I'm not a IQ elitist. I mean, I, I am a racialist. So I want to, there are, there are tens of millions of East Asians and Indians and Arabs and, and, and even Africans who have very high IQs who could displace my people in upper, you know, professional jobs, upper middle class jobs. I don't want that. But I want to make time, my people better. But at the same time, your people would be better, right? Imagine no. this person comes over and they discover a cure for cancer that the other guy may not have. They can do that in India. Mm, different opportunities are over here, right? Of course, but I mean, there, there's no reason that these amazing inventions and discoveries can't take place elsewhere. I actually think that in terms of genomics and so on, there's going to be a tremendous amount of amazing work done in China. So what? Well, so you would rather prioritize then? You think you think it's helping the white race to have the job instead of to actually have it to someone that might be better qualified for it? Yeah, because I I prefer my people. I mean, it's like I don't know what to say. If you have a child, I mean, you know, and that child like you know doesn't get into a a great school or right, something. Right. You know, I mean, I guess you could say at some level, you could say, well, you know, um, maybe this person was more qualified, but y you want the best for her or him. I mean, you want to privilege your child. This is one thing why I, I really am sick of all this obsession with white privilege and, and the denial of white privilege on the part of conservatives. They're like, oh, white privilege doesn't exist. We're, we're just, a, it's a free market or something. That's nonsense. Of course, white privilege exists. We, we should be deepening expanding white privilege privilege is good we want to privilege our people first we want to give them advantages that we don't give others because ultimately life is a zero-sum game there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers i want my people winning well your i guess your view of your people is just narrower than most americans right because when we say we're americans i want america to be number one so we want the best person for the job but you're saying no 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 i want a white American or a white person right. generally to be in that position. So you think that benefits you more directly. Yes. And I would say that most uh, most American patriots are white. And when in their mind's eye, when they say America or something like this, in their mind's eye, they have visions of picket fences and backyard barbecues and Sunday school sermons. And they, they basically have a vision of white America in their mind's eye. And they're not willing to be open about that. They're not willing to articulate it in the way that I am. But, those but that like, is their dream. Those don't sound like exclusively white dreams. I think everybody could get down with that. White picket fences, nice houses, barbecue, sign me up. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you to a, to a certain extent, but, but the answer is no. Uh, in the sense that you don't see any of that in areas that are overwhelmingly Hispanic or overwhelmingly African-American. Uh, it does derive from a, a white sensibility that only we have. That doesn't mean that exceptions around the edges can't come into it and, and enjoy it, but it does come from somewhere. It comes from us. Well, it comes from middle-class America, those kinds of things, right? Sure. Historically, that has been white, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to stay that way to preserve it. I mean... I, I do think it does. So, I mean, I, I could imagine a kind of cartoonish version of America uh, that is a, a non-white version of that, but even that would be a kind of parody of it. But how so? Like, so you have a couple of, you know, even even if it's not mostly white, why couldn't all those people enjoy a barbecue, for example? Like, maybe it had historical roots in middle-class white America, but is it any less of a barbecue now? No, I mean, again, I, I don't doubt that to a certain degree non-whites can adopt customs of these places. But with, an, with an, enough numbers, are they going to create a culture and a society that are radically different than white Americans? The answer to that is clearly yes. And we have proof of that. Well, when you say radically different, that's like a different scale because I mean, think a valid concern that all countries have and always have had is getting is getting overrun by mass influx of population that they can't absorb but i don't see that necessarily happening at least where i live at least around here right it doesn't seem to be happening we seem to be integrating quite well well i mean using old town alexandria as an example i mean th this is a very uh elite posh wealthy place 
Uh, I don't think this is a good example for thinking about what is happening in Chicago, what's happening in large parts of Dallas and Houston or Los Angeles or so on. I, I think it's, it's quite deceptive, actually, to, to focus on some posh community where the, the people who come in who are non-white are, are high IQ, they, they're more assimilable, they want to assimilate and so on. It, it's just really not what, what it looks like in El Paso. But that's more of economic conditions that are creating those problems. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're getting into a chicken and egg or horse <laughs> and cart question yeah. where I, I, you know, I would or, or we're begging the question. I mean, where does that economy come from? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we should ever think about the economy as this just abstract, you know, numbers or cash flow or anything like that. I mean, the economy is part of society. I mean, the um I, I, I believe the origin of the word economy is housekeeping. Mm. Um, but anyway, it, it, is, it emerges from a particular spirit and, and culture. And so the economy of a particular place is going to be a way like that because of the people there. Over the last 25 years, China has adopted capitalism to a degree that is, is remarkable, mm. knowing its recent history. I don't think anyone could travel to Beijing and say that, oh, yeah, this this is just a white country or something like that. No, their capitalism is peculiar and it's different. They might have a certain appetite for some Hollywood movies or the rich people might want to buy a German car or a Swiss watch. But that doesn't mean that the economy properly understood as, as an organic whole is anything similar to what you would find in Munich or... Des Moines, Iowa. Right. I mean, I would say that they're adopting some Western influences and it's becoming somewhat capitalist and somewhat Western, but it's coming from a totally different, you know, history and perspective. And so it's going to look different and be different. Right. Yeah. I basically agree with what you said. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so what's next for you? What is, uh, what is the next big thing? Well, um, we are, un- we're in a struggle right now, I could say. In terms of platforming, I know um, we have serious issues with social media. We have serious issues with things like payment processors, web hosting. This has just been a long-term. This has been a long-term struggle, and and after Charlottesville, and intensified. So I need to figure that out in terms of hosting conferences. We have hosted, I believe, five conferences at the Ronald Reagan Building in D.C. And that is a federal facility that is administered by a private contractor, but it is a federal facility. We have just been deplatformed from there. Uh, we are certainly considering legal options uh, with regard to moving forward there. Uh, so we are facing a major deplatforming situation. This is very ironic in the sense that people want to talk to us. I mean, people want our opinion on some things. People want to use me as a, as a, as a metaphor of, of this, you know, boogeyman you know, racist or elitist or whatever they want to think about me. James Bond villain, I think that's what hmm. I'm kind of becoming. So there's this tremendous interest in us, but then at the same time, there is the the, the actions on, on behalf of, of a lot of these corporations to deplatform us. So we're in this ironic situation, and we need to find a way out. I am very confident that we will, but I'm all, I also know that it's going to be a, a major process. It's going to be very difficult. So you're trying to reach more people or just stay in touch with the people that are already believers? Well, I mean, we want to create a real movement. And so that is about, you know, working with our our core. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, in terms of communicating things, I mean, the, the, I have met people who are now alt-right who said that they learned about me a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, at Charlottesville One, I remember meeting this um, a youngish girl and I said oh how, how did you get into the alt-right you know it's interesting that you're out here and she said oh well I, I saw you at Texas A&M so that that was a few six months before or less than that before she came out there and she was already had integrated into Identity Europa and then was attending major rallies and so on so wow. things are happening really fast from from my generation Gen Xers um, I was born in 1978 I'm kind of at the tail end of Gen X um, you know, we, we went through this long, torturous, you know, arduous process of reading books and being a libertarian for three years and then, you know, reversing that and being a leftist and opposing the Iraq war and all. We, we went through this long intellectual process. For millennials and Gen Z, it's just boom. 
uh, they watch a video, they read an article, everything's just more immediate. And, and also the, the world we live in is more intense. Uh, it, the, the anti-white animus uh, is more intense. It's more in your face than it was 10 years ago for me. Um, and so things are happening really quickly. I would also say this, that um, once you get red-pilled, you don't really ever go back. Um, I don't know of anyone who's told me that I'm a, I'm a former alt-rightist who's now a libertarian. Uh, or something like that. It's always the reverse. Basically, you become more radical. You, 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 you get closer and closer to the real truth. And so there is a clear dynamic underway, and that is that people who are interested in, say, radical ideas or even right-wing ideas are coming to the alt-right, and the, it is not going the other direction. Mm -hmm. So it is an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing time to be alive. I'm glad I am. Wow. Well, it, Richard, this has been a fascinating discussion. I learned a lot. What you're talking about, I disagree with it, but at least we can have the conversation. We definitely can. I would be happy to have another one with you. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. And is there anything else that you wanted to... I know. You just check out allright.com. You can check me out on Twitter, Richard B. Spencer. Uh, we can check at me. Check out our organization at nationalpolicy.institute. Yes, believe it or not, that's now a URL. So uh, that's where you can find me on the web. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So this interview took on a different nature than I thought it would. Richard is very deep in philosophy, and he talks a lot about Nietzsche, and he is very academic and intellectual. And you can tell he didn't just wake up the other day and think of this stuff. You can tell he's been thinking it through for a long time. And see, that's where these ideas are really dangerous. See, Richard's not the type of guy you have to worry about if you bump into him on the street. You could tell he's coming from a privileged background. He's been studying and living overseas. Uh, he's got a higher education. He's playing the long game. This isn't the type of thing you protest on the street and it goes away tomorrow. This is more, you know, even long after Richard is gone, his ideas might still be out there. And so it's important that we understand the underlying assumptions that he's making, you know, vis-a-vis -vis race and how that affects culture. And that's how we can ultimately agree or disagree with it. I don't think what he's talking about is correct in the least bit. But you never know, someone listening to this 20 years from now or 50 years from now might be in a different situation. It might be more desperate and more susceptible to his ideas. And he points out a couple very good observations. History is largely winners and losers. It's not a debating club. It could be a zero-sum game uh, that makes the stakes all the more high. And you'll also notice how he captures his objection to violence. Yeah, he says there's a moral component to it, but also he says it's not practical. He's not going to attack the United States government on its own terms because he would lose. He doesn't want to associate, associate himself with violence because it would discredit his movement and he doesn't believe that currently there's any violence that he could bring about that would achieve his end goal. But these are not permanent situations. That begs the question, what if the situation were to change and you could achieve your goals through violence, then what would you do? This is the inherent danger when someone is too far to the pragmatist end of the spectrum and too far away from the idealist end of the spectrum. Yeah, if you're a pure idealist, that's also bad, but if you're a pure pragmatist, you end up being able to justify anything. So you need to actually find a reasonable balance between the two. Well, let's bring it back to the thought we opened the show with. At what point do these ideas become intolerable? I'm interested to hear what you think. So go ahead and check us out on facebook.com slash dangerousideaspodcast, or you can go to my website, dangerousideaspodcast.com. This is Dangerous Ideas. I'm Jordan Gesemi. Be reasonable.